People ask me all the time if uh, I'm happy to be back in Farmington. But, they, you know, they say it in a tone that's like, so are you happy to be back in Farmington? <laughs> are you not happy to live in Farmington? Now, the, the honest answer is this is home for us, and we could not be more happy to be back in Farmington. And uh, you guys are a huge part of what makes this home for us. And so I just want to say thank you and uh, say that I, we love you all. And my wife wishes that she could be here today, but she's on her way back from a wedding in California. Did you guys know that today is the last day of spring break? Yeah? Yeah, I can tell you guys are really excited about that. All of the, the working responsible adults are like, well, yeah, we don't get to go on spring break vacations. And I'm about to throw Brent under the bus. You see, I was about to plan a spring break vacation. And I was thinking maybe we would go to Universal Studios. And Brent comes into my office and says, hey, uh, we're going on a spring break family vacation and we're going to Universal Studios. Oh, come on. And although I'm sure he loved the idea of taking me with them on their family vacation, I did agree to hold down the fort here this week and preach this morning so they could enjoy their well-deserved vacation, and uh, Brent wouldn't have to try to study while he was riding rides at Universal Studios. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I'm very excited and so honored to have the opportunity to study God's Word with you guys this morning. And today, we're going to be studying out of Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. And today we're going to be studying the sign of Jonah, which also happens to be the title for today's message. And we're going to be breaking it up into two points. First, we're going to see a request to test in point number one. And then we'll finish up with point number two, the hazard of a hollow heart. So as you're turning to Matthew chapter 12, I'm just going to ask the Lord for his blessing over this time. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. God, we thank you that you lead and you guide and you direct our lives, Lord. I pray that you would just speak to us now, that uh, we would focus on you, that we would realize that you are the most important thing in this moment. There's nothing more important than you right now. Lord, so we fix our eyes and our hearts on you, and we anxiously anticipate what it is that you might speak to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, what we're going to do is we're going to read our text as a whole, and then we're going to break it apart verse by verse like we often do here at Desert Heights. Here we go, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Also, I'm speaking out of the NIV today, so I'm going to throw some people off. Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of the person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. 
All right, so we've got quite a bit to dig into this morning, uh, but as I was reading this passage, I was reminded of a line in a movie, and I, I don't recommend very many movies, and I especially don't recommend the movie that I'm about to mention, but, <laughs> but sometimes lines in movies just kind of jump off of the screen and into our vocabulary, and they kind of become a part of the way that we think and speak, and they kind of inform us about ourselves and our attitudes. And in the movie, Jerry Maguire, the character played by Tom Cruise, is, he's in a bit of a predicament. He's fired from his old job as a sports agent, and he's got to win new clients or risk losing his new business. So he finds a young, talented football player played by Cuba Gooding Jr., and he looks like a promising prospect. But when Jerry tries to negotiate on his behalf, he throws it back in his face and he says, show me the money. That's one of my dad's favorite movies and favorite lines to quote. That's why I'm so familiar with it. <laughs> but you know the scene. He makes Jerry shout out, show me the money, until it's echoing through the halls. And the line quickly entered the American vocabulary as a way to say, I don't just want promises. I want results. Show me the money. But it reflects the character of our society and a common attitude. We want proof up front or we ain't buying and my wife teases me all the time because I'm the worst about researching things before I buy them. I will read all of the Amazon reviews and go on YouTube and watch all of the YouTube videos about a product before I buy it. Am I the only one who does that? Wow. Okay. <laughs> Call me crazy, but I want to know that the product is as good as the company says it is before I buy it. But sometimes people make similar demands of God. They say something like, how do I know that you're real? Prove it. Or how can I be sure to trust you with my life and my problems? Give me a sign. But just how effective is this line of reasoning? Is it smart to ask God to prove himself? Well, we're going to find out today in our text. And as we just read, the religious leaders and the enemies of Jesus, they were making similar demands and they got a response that they probably weren't expecting. And frankly, they probably didn't understand. So here we go. We're going to start with point number one a request to test. We're going to begin to dive in a little deeper and take this apart verse by verse now. Verse 38. And some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. So just to give you some context for the situation, uh, Jesus had literally just finished performing an amazing miracle where he healed a demon-possessed man that was blind and mute. So the Pharisees and the scribes they weren't really seeking to know Jesus, although they tried to act genuine by calling him teacher or rabbi and giving him a compliment. They had already decided not to believe, and all they wanted was evidence. They wanted a chance to prove that Jesus was not who he said he was. And often that's kind of what people want. They want God to be proved to them before they'll believe I'll say something like, and I hear this one all the time, show me tangible evidence that I can see with my eyes, that I can touch with my hands. But Jesus, he, he throws it right back in the Pharisee's face. Verse 39, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus sees right through the Pharisees and he calls them out on their wickedness. He tells them that what they're doing is wrong and He's not going to grant their wicked request. So right off the bat, we see that Jesus is not happy about the fact that the Pharisees are trying to test him. So he says, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. 
but I will teach you a lesson. And I love what Jesus does here because he's, he's about to give a gospel presentation, essentially. And apparently, God thinks that it's enough to just give us his word and expect a response. Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So the only sign that Jesus would give them was the sign of his own death, burial, and resurrection. And that's, that's really all that matters. It's the core essential of our faith, and it's the thing that we should be most focused on, and it's the thing that we really rely upon as Christians. Not always wanting more and more and more. Here at Desert Heights, we believe that in the essentials, we have unity, and in the non-essentials, we have liberty. So we're free to agree to disagree. Try saying that 10 times fast. But one of our essential beliefs is that Jesus died and rose again so we could be saved and have a relationship with him. And this is the sign that Jesus is giving the Pharisees, and he's telling them that this is what they should really be focused on. This also brings up the point that people who don't know Jesus, they can't be uh, won over by miracles, but we should point them to the real miracle, which is Jesus' death and resurrection for them. Those who have set their hearts against the Lord won't benefit from special miracles either. That's why in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, when the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his family to warn them about this terrible place of torment that he's in, Abraham replies and tells him that if his family won't listen to Moses and the prophets when the truth is preached, then they won't be convinced even if someone was to rise from the dead. And the same principle applies to people today. People who have set their hearts against God, those who don't accept the truth of the gospel when it's preached, they won't be convinced by wondrous signs. But the question for us, those who already believe, is this. How often do we want the Lord to prove himself by doing our bidding in a visible way? How much do we rely on miracles or signs to prove that God is among us and that he's blessing us and approving of us? Now, I personally think that it's a mistake to rely on signs of God's presence like words from the Lord or prophecies or miracles. That's not to say that those things are unimportant. Uh, God does use those things. But when we use these signs as the only way to move us, well, that's a recipe for getting lost. See, whenever we shift our focus away from God and away from his word, we're going to get lost. So we need to keep scripture at the forefront of all that we do. In fact, there's some Christians, some denominations, some churches uh, that use gifts of the Spirit in order to validate their own spirituality or even salvation instead of what gifts and miracles were designed to do, which is point people to Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, 36 through 43, we find the story of Dorcas, which if you're looking for a baby name, <laughs> probably not one that I would recommend. Maybe that's just me. But Dorcas died, and the Lord, through Peter, brought him back to life. And at the end of that story, in verse 42, it says, This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. So this miracle had the correct outcome. People got saved. And that's often when the Lord moves in the miraculous, not just so we can be satisfied or entertained. 
A further question is this. Do you have to have a sign in order to trust the Lord? When you ask the Lord something or for something, do you do one of these three things? You put out a fleece, ask for open or closed doors, or seek someone to give you a word from the Lord. Now, if you're a relatively new Christian, you might be hearing me talk about a fleece and have no clue as to what I'm talking about. Putting out a fleece comes from the experience of Gideon found in Judges chapter 6. The Lord tells Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He then tells Gideon to rescue Israel from the hands of the Mennonites. And Gideon, he contradicts the Lord twice, but then he asks for not one, but three different signs from the Lord to prove that it was actually God that was speaking to him, to prove that the Lord was calling him. And two of those signs involved a fleece of wool. First, Gideon tells the Lord, okay, why don't you uh, make the fleece wet with dew and the ground around it dry? And then God does that, and he says, well, that might have been a coincidence, so how about we reverse it now? How about the ground be wet and the fleece be dry? And here's kind of an example of our human nature where God's word isn't enough for us. But God, in his patience and in his grace, granted Gideon's request, and ever since then, people of God have been asking for fleeces. They say, if this event is meant to take place, or if this event does take place, then I'll take it as a sign that it's okay to do the thing that I've been contemplating. Now, I'm actually, I'll admit, I'm guilty of this one. When I was 18 years old, I was itching to get out of the house and uh, get on with my life. And I was convinced that moving to Sacramento, California, going to American River College to the, the recording program was exactly what I needed to do with my life. So I decided that that's what I was going to do with my life. So what, what did I do? I naturally, I applied at three different targets. Because <laughs> we all know Target pays really well and that's going to pay for school, right? <laughs> but I, I remember clearly praying this prayer. I said, Lord, if I get one of these jobs, then I'll take it as a sign that you want me to move to Sacramento. <laughs> well, I got one of the jobs and I moved to Sacramento. And let me tell you, <laughs> I was miserable. I was there for three months before God told me in an audible voice, which is a, another story for another day, but he said, look, you don't, you don't belong here. I've got something greater, something bigger for you. You need to leave. And so literally as I was on my way home, the Lord opened a door for a ministry position where I was trained to lead worship and be a youth pastor. But you see, I made a very poor decision because I had focused more on the sign and what I wanted the sign, than God's word and God's will. I'm sure a lot of us have prayed the open or closed doors prayer, which is essentially us asking the Lord to change external circumstances to let something happen or not happen in our lives. Seeking a word from the Lord is when we open our Bibles randomly. Has anyone ever done that one? Open your Bible randomly. God, I need to hear you. Yeah, yeah, I've done it too. Or, we wait for somebody to give us a word from the Lord instead of seeking him for ourselves. You see, the problem with fleece is they're, is they're open to coincidence. The problem with relying on open or closed doors is they're open to external circumstances. And the problem with seeking someone else's word is that it's open to interpretation. I've actually had people come up to me before and tell me, brother, I've got a word from the Lord for you. God told me to tell you that uh, 
And then they say something really vague that I, I don't really understand. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? Could you explain that for me? They don't understand it either. <laughs> it's like, well, thanks. Uh, I'm not sure what it means, but thank you. And again, I'm not saying that God can't move or speak through these avenues. That's not what I'm saying. There's evidence uh, in the Bible of God moving through these. Uh, but what I would like to suggest is three other ways uh, that might really help us benefit from seeking God's direction. Instead of relying on something or someone else to do our thinking and our praying and our listening for us. I wonder what we do if uh, <laughs> we're seeking a word from the Lord and we open up our Bibles randomly to Matthew 27.5, which says, Judas threw the money in the temple, left, and hung himself. <laughs> That'd be a little awkward, wouldn't it? Now, again, I'm not completely ruling out these ways of determining God's will, uh, but here are three ways that will really help you and serve you better in seeking God's wisdom and direction. And the first thing that will help you seek God's direction is peace. One of my favorite verses is Philippians 4, 6 through 7. says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whenever we have a big decision to make, it's easy to get anxious, it's easy to panic and to worry. But God tells us not to do that. He says, instead, look, I know that you have things in your life that you're stressing about, but let's just take a second and talk about them. So God wants us to talk to him about our problems. Then he says, okay, so tell me everything, make your case, but I want you to be thankful. What? You're telling me I can't just complain about how hard life is? But seriously, you know how hard it is to be thankful when you're stressing out about something, don't you? But God says, stop worrying and think about the fact that the creator of the universe wants to know you and wants to have a relationship with you and hears you when you speak to him. That's pretty incredible. And that's, that's definitely something to be thankful for. We also know that in James chapter 1, verse 3, it says that every trial and test that we go through is a chance for God to use it for his glory and to grow our faith. So there's another reason to be thankful. So instead of looking for a sign when we ask God for something, we should be looking for his peace, which will guard our hearts and minds. Now the word guard here in the text means to literally call the shots or umpire. So notice that it says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we shouldn't rely on our own peace, which is subject to emotion and instability, but we should seek God's peace about a situation. The peace that surpasses all understanding. And then you don't have to worry anymore because God's peace is calling the shots and not you. All right, so the second thing, that will help us seek God's direction is knowledge, knowing God. Yeah, who would have thought, right? Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through in his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So we want power, we want faith, we want strength. We get these things through knowing the Lord, through knowing God. So simply spending time with him, doing your soap, filling out your soap commitment card, worshiping, praying, opening your life to him and being moldable. All of those things mean that you'll begin to take on the character of God and you'll start to think and even look like Christ. That's a little scary, but it's a lot a bit good. A lot of it. That's my new word. I just made it up. <laughs> the third thing that we can do to seek God's direction is simply trust. Another one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. So most of us have heard this verse before, but uh, what does it actually mean? Well, it's honestly pretty self-explanatory. It simply means that we aren't smart enough to figure this life out on our own, but when we trust God completely with our whole heart, we don't really have to worry about that because he will make our path straight. So submit your life to God's will and he'll work everything out. On the topic of trusting God, uh, you guys remember the story of the disciples, their boat gets caught in the storm and they're all freaking out. Well, Jesus let them experience that storm to see if they really trusted him. Also remember the synagogue ruler whose only child had just died. Jesus turned to him in the midst of the doubters and said, don't be afraid, only believe. So don't rely on signs. Instead, rely on the Savior. This is ultimately what God wants that you would keep him at the center of your life, that he would be your focus, not signs and wonders. Just a side note, Jesus had no problem performing miracles. We all know that. They're everywhere in scripture. In fact, the gospel of John, which we're usually studying on Sunday mornings right now, is filled with them, and we're about to get into that, and I cannot be more excited. I've been loving this series. But Jesus didn't do these things to impress or entertain us, but he did them so that we might believe and put our trust in him. One more thing before we move on. I think that sometimes, sometimes we want a, a sign in order to know that God really loves us or that he approves of us. But in reality, that's the sign that Jesus is pointing to right here, the sign of his death is the proof of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus has already proved his love. Now it's time for us to show him that we got the message and put our trust in him. So back to our story, just a couple questions to answer here before we wrap up this point. Why does Jesus call the generation wicked and adulterous? An adulterer uh, was someone who claimed to be married yet had intimate relationships with somebody else. Most of us know that. But God's prophets often use the term adulterer in a spiritual sense. People who claimed to be married or belong exclusively to God, but yet in practice served and worshipped other gods. For us, when we claim to have given our lives and our futures over to the Lord, but then we demand God to perform on our terms, aren't we doing the same thing? So don't demand a sign or try to conform God to your wishes or your will. Instead, conform and trust in the will of God. Jesus said a sign would come, but in his timing. So we ask the Lord to help, but then we wait for him to move. 
So that's why Jesus called the generation wicked and adulterous. Now, why did Jesus use Jonah and the Ninevites as an example? Well, because if a pagan nation, the enemy of Israel, could respond to the Lord's rebuke and repent, then why couldn't the people of this generation? And he goes on to describe another pagan in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south refers to the queen of Sheba in southern Arabia who came to visit King Solomon and came away completely impressed with the Lord and got saved. In contrast, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you need to repent and you need to believe because someone much greater than Jonah and much greater than Solomon is here now. All right, so we've looked at a request to test. Now Jesus is going to describe what will happen if the Pharisees don't repent. Point number two, the hazard of a hollow heart. Verse 43, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven, seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of the man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So Jesus tells this story about a man that's been possessed and was battling life's dominating sins, and he decided to change through self-reformation. This man attempted to clean up his act and put his life in order, but all this did was create a spiritual vacuum in his heart. And no one can exist with this type of vacuum within them. Whenever there's a, a vacuum or an empty space in your heart, it will be filled by something. That's why changing behavior is never enough. Changing behavior without changing your deepest desires and belief is just behavior modification. What this man and all men need is a changed heart. There'll never be lasting or true change without a changed heart. So Jesus uses the story to tell the Pharisees, your hearts are empty and hollow, and if you don't repent and believe and take this opportunity that I'm giving you right now, then your empty hearts are going to be filled with nothing but evil. Likewise, Jesus came and healed and died for Israel. He cleaned house. But since Israel rejected him, it opened the way for Satan to thrash the people over and over and over again in worse ways than ever. Now, the application here for us is when we allow the Lord to sweep our lives clean, but then we don't get filled with him either by salvation initially or by sanctification as we mature in Christ, then we're leaving the door wide open for Satan to return and make things worse than before. You see, every single person in the world has a God-shaped hole in their heart when they're born, and that hole is going to be filled with one thing or the other. It's either going to be filled with evil, which leads to eternity separated from God, or it's going to be filled with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which gives us eternal life. The thing about this God-shaped hole in our hearts is that we know that something is missing, and people try to fill that hole with destructive habits and addictions. And eventually, people start to realize that it's not working. And they're not happy. 
So they do one of two things. They either go further off the deep end or they decide to quit. And they're positive that quitting is going to make them happy. But then it doesn't. You see, you can't make yourself better. You can't fill that hole in your heart with anything except for Jesus. Sometimes people even try to fill that hole in their heart with uh, religion. They think that going to church, following the golden rule, will make them a good person and get them into heaven. That's not how it works. In fact, an externally changed life without new life internally is almost worse because you can get inoculated to Jesus. You hang around church and Christians and you sing the songs. You learn the lingo, the Christianese, as I like to call it, as a good friend of mine recently called it. And on the outside, you begin to form a pattern around what you see in others so you don't realize that you must make a personal commitment to Christ. Don't let that happen to you. The house may be clean, but still empty without asking God to take up residence there. So just to recap, Jesus calls out the Pharisees because he sees that they're trying to test him and their focus is not where it should be. And he challenges them to repent or else. And Jesus does the same for us. He challenges us to focus on him, make him the center of our lives, to believe and to repent. So my question to you is, is your focus where it should be this morning? Do you trust God completely with your life or are you constantly asking him to prove himself with signs? If that's you this morning, I want you to remember that Jesus has already proven himself and his love for you when he died on the cross for your sin and rose again. And that is the only sign that we will ever need. Maybe this morning you're aware of this God-shaped hole in your heart and you're starting to realize that self-cleaning and just being a good person isn't enough and that you can't do it on your own. Well, if that's you, then don't worry because you don't have to. God wants to help you. All you have to do is do what the Pharisees couldn't. Repent of your sin and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and let Christ fill that hole in your heart. So as we close in prayer this morning, if you're wanting to put your faith in Jesus and let God fill that hole in your heart, you can just kind of echo my prayer. Or if you'd like someone to pray with you, uh, you can come talk to me or Pastor Brent after church, and we'd love to talk with you, answer any questions that you might have, and pray with you. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. God, we recognize that our focus isn't always where it should be, and that sometimes we, we do ask for signs when we shouldn't. Lord, I pray that the sign that you gave us, your son, would be more than enough for us because it is. Lord, I pray that you would just fill our hearts, that you would fill our lives. That if there's anybody here this morning that has that God-shaped hole in their heart and they want it to be filled, Lord, that you would just enter into their life, that you would fill that hole, that they would believe and that they would live a life that honors you. Lord, I pray that uh, even us as Christians, sometimes we try to fill uh, that hole, even when we know the truth, even when we know that you're the only thing that can fill that hole. Lord, let us not put anything in your place. There's nothing that can take your place. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for a body of believers that love you and that have a desire to grow in you and worship you. In your name we pray, amen.